So we took the wrong road in schooling when we put instruction into the hands of professionalized strangers. We piled mistake upon mistake after that, overemphasizing the training that school could deliver, ringing bells in children's ears, extending childhood further and further into the most vigorous part of life, mathematically segregating kids according to the alchemy of standardized test scores, and finally committing the worst mistake of all, yoking the world of work to the world of schooling, forcing a connection which simply does not exist. And when we come to transcend our Columbines, it will be because we awaken from this self-induced nightmare and act out of two bedrock principles. One, that nobody can educate you except yourself. Surely our universal individual experiences confirm that one. And two, that over-organization precipitates entropy, the disintegration of order. When American schooling stopped being primarily for mental development and character training, as the man or woman on the street would understand those things, it became a training ground to supply the existing economy with a particular kind of labor and customers that it needed. One buried byproduct of this shift was to sabotage free market principles because by conditioning children to what is instead of what could be, it heavily subsidized existing commerce and social political dispositions. It insulated them against future competition by indoctrinating children in what is and how to succeed with what is. Artificially extending childhood is the way schools use to cripple the majority of our population lifelong. Many parents have been gulled into assisting this procedure. Don't you be one of them. Welcome to the Men of Character podcast with your host, Bill Mason. I have Zach uh, Slayback. He's a writer, author, and businessman. He's the author of a forthcoming book um, on succeeding in your career. So welcome, Zach. Thanks for having me, Bill. Awesome. Thanks for being on. So today we're going to talk about, um, unfortunately, the passing of John Taylor Gatto. So he was someone who has deeply influenced my, me, has deeply influenced Zach. Um, he was an American author and school teacher. He taught in uh, New York City public classrooms and in private schools for nearly 30 years. And then he devoted uh, pretty much to the end of his life uh, on sort of exposing what the roots of modern education was, were and criticizing the ideology and the history and uh, what he saw as the consequences of that. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, background about how you came across John Taylor Gatto and, and why you feel his work is, uh, you know, is important? You know, honestly, I think I came across Gatto's work when I was researching the history of public schooling on Wikipedia or YouTube one day. And I came across a series of uh, summaries, not really summaries, but it's, it's almost like not quite an audiobook, but they're excerpts. They're read aloud excerpts from his underground history book. 
uh, which is a behemoth of a book if you ever check it out. Uh, if you can get your hands yeah. on, if you can get your hands on the first edition copy, I recommend that. They they started putting out a second edition copy, um, but they only have the first volume out. Uh, it, so I, I would just try to find a, a copy of the first edition if if you're curious about that. Uh, there are PDF copies available online. But I remember coming across it and it was this just really well-produced kind of like voiceover of some excerpts from the book. And, you know, I grew up in the era of No Child Left Behind. Uh, this was, you know, a piece of Bush era legislation that was pushed through to further centralize uh, a lot of public education. And I remember hearing my teachers complain about it. I remember hearing the administrators complain about it. And I remember hearing from me personally, experiencing the fact that I had to focus more and more of my time as a student on reading, writing, science, arithmetic, things like that, when I was already good at them and I wanted to focus on other things. And I remember being told, no, you have to sit down and study for the state exams that are coming up and being kind of confused at the time. I think I was junior high or middle school at this point. Uh, being confused why I had to sit for these state exams when that obviously wasn't what I wanted to focus on and what I wanted to learn. So I, I eventually fell down the rabbit hole of discovering some of Gatto's work. Uh, and he goes into a lot of detail that a lot of the things that we talk about today when it comes to education policy, which can make your eyes, you know, glaze over and is not particularly engaging questions then like uh, no child left behind and now like common core education are actually kind of distractions. They're, they're not uh, the real root of the problem. The real root of the problem is the incentive structure that is set up around uh, a lot of compulsory schooling. You know, in this conversation here, I'm not going to talk about public schooling versus private schooling because the question isn't, and this is another question, another point that a lot of people get wrong, I think, when they start having this conversation, the question is not public versus private. Uh, the question is compulsory versus non-compulsory. And it just so happens in the United States that uh, compulsory education, compulsory schooling is a function of public schooling. But yep. a lot of Gatto's issues that he saw, uh, you know, Bill pointed out that he was a public school teacher. He wasn't just a public school teacher. He was uh, New York City's teacher of the year for, I believe, two years. And he was New York State's teacher of the year for one year. I think in 93, he was uh, New York State's teacher of the year. And at the end of all of this, he penned an open letter. And this is the introduction to his under, underground history, if you go read it. He penned a letter that I, he sent into either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, one of the big newspapers in New York, and uh, titled, I Quit, I Think where he goes through and he just lists how no matter how much he tried to help children learn, how much he tried to help young adults learn and get integrated into the workforce and become competent at being adults, right? Which is what education ought to help you do. It, it should help you navigate the world as a competent human being. Uh, he would run into barriers at every step of the way. And these barriers were, uh, broadly speaking, you could say the bureaucracy, right? 
they're either administrators or they were uh, state standards or they were all these problems and expectations that were uh, foisted upon him as a teacher. And the ending lines to the letter are, uh, if you know a job where I don't have to hurt children for a living, let me know. Come fall, I'll be looking for work. Which, I mean, <laughs> yeah. is, 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 is quite the mic drop, right? Um, so well, that's, why, that's what I find fascinating about his work is that, you know, this is not some guy just talking about homeschooling because he's, you know, it's ideological or this is someone who was actively in the school system and was awarded best, you know, like you said, state teacher of the year, but still had these realizations and, and just couldn't, just because of his own, you know, conscience couldn't not share what, what was occurring. So I think it, when you read his book, it's like you said, it's pretty shocking to be like some, actually some of the speeches that he gave or the courage that I would imagine it took to write these speeches. And he just, I think, I feel like he just oozed courage from, from the perspective that he had and how he was willing to share it with, you know, right in the middle of a state teacher award dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, sharing, shocking. he's sharing these thoughts at like, you know, yeah, the state teacher awards dinners. And it's important to keep in mind, he's sharing these thoughts in the early to mid nineties, which I can tell you even in That's the, true. even in the, you know, half decade or so that I've been it, like formally working in the education space or against the education space, uh, like up against it. In, I, I've seen the Overton window shift here, uh, people becoming more and more comfortable with what you might call alternative education approaches. When Gatto was talking about a lot of this stuff, the only people who really did homeschooling were the stereotypical homeschoolers that you think of as people doing it for religious reasons with denim down to their ankles, churning butter at 4 a.m. Um, yeah. Like you can go back and if, if you're interested in the homeschooling or the, uh, you know, voluntary education subject area, you can go back and you can watch some interviews on uh, Donahue with John Holt, right? Uh, and John Holt is another one of these big thinkers if, that came a little bit before Gatto. Uh, and a lot of the people who are talking to Holt uh, are people who their only conception of people who went to schools outside of the public school system, outside of the compulsory school system, uh, were either very privileged people who went to private schools or again, the like 4 a.m. butter churners who are homeschooling <laughs> for religious reasons. So yeah. a lot of the stuff that Gatto has been saying or what was saying is ridiculously outside of the Overton window when he starts talking about it in the 90s. Yeah, it definitely feels like the, you know, there's been a big shift and I think the numbers now are right, like around 3 million or more uh, people that are, that are actively homeschooling. And, and it's not, like you said, not majority now is probably not for, for religious reasons, but more because of people like John Taylor Gatto and, and Holt as well, who, who spoke about these things. And, and um, yeah, I, I think we, we're, we're in a, a bit of a Renaissance period and I'm excited to see the next, uh, sort of 20 years of, of, of education change at, at that level. But um, can you tell us about, you, you carry a, a quote of, of, of Gatto's. So tell us a little bit about that quote that you carry. 
Yeah. So somebody gave me this card one day, I think at just some conference I was at, uh, and on one side is a, is a chess piece an artistically drawn like pawn, uh, with like a king piece in the background. And then the other is a quotation, uh, from one of Gatto's speeches. Uh, and the quotation is you either learn your way towards writing your own script in life, or you unwittingly become an actor in somebody else's. And I keep it as just a reminder that, you know, it, it takes constant effort to control your career, to control your family, to control your spiritual life, whatever you want to look at it as, because there are large incentive structures. And I, and I don't mean this in like a conspiratorial way, which we can talk about that as well. Uh, but there are large incentive structures that it's really easy to follow if, you, if you're not actively thinking about the, the choices you want to make. And the education system, the schooling system that Gatto writes about, uh, he, he makes a point, I believe again in the introduction to the underground history, which is it's really easy to read what I am going to be writing about, to read about the history of compulsory schooling and to think that it's a conspiracy theory or to think that it's an actual conspiracy, right? Yeah. And he says, I actually kind of wish it were a conspiracy because if it were, it would have a simple solution. Conspiracies have simple solutions. You know, you chop off the head at the top of the conspiracy and like, great, the conspiracy's done. Uh, but it's not a conspiracy. It's, it's a lot of incentive structures coming together at opportune times to create this very large, I, I don't even want to call it a hydra because again, a hydra implies that there are heads that can be chopped off uh, to create this very large system that everyone is just following their rational self-interest in the system. And no one is actually, very few people are acting maliciously inside of it, but you, that means that there's no easy way of solving the system, right? There's no easy way of fixing it. Yeah. Which is why Gatto in, in, I think that's why Gatto ends up becoming a proponent of homeschooling uh, because it's the most direct way that parents and young people can take control of their own educations. And again, get an education that is actually an education that prepares you to be a competent adult in the world. Uh, Gatto talks on a number of different occasions about how one of the effects of compulsory schooling is the extension of adolescence or the invention of adolescence. Uh, you know, contrary to some people who are in the alternative education space, uh, Gatto does not believe that you should treat children as like children uh, at past the age of like 10, right? He yeah. It's how historically, you know, people who are preteens and teenagers are treated essentially as junior adults. But we've kind of seen an inversion of this under the compulsory schooling model and the extension of the compulsory schooling model with a, a culturally compulsory a higher education model where adolescence, which is this, this period where you're not quite an adult, but you're not quite a child. You can't be held responsible like an adult can. You don't have the expectations of an adult, but you also can't be like free and playful like a child is extended into 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. Yeah. Uh, which has a lot of issues where you end up having people who they've gone two decades of their lives. The first decade I think is excusable because you know, you're 
you're an infant, you know, you're a child. But then the second decade where you're an adult, uh, where they're totally incapable through no fault of their own, usually, of writing their own script, right? Yeah. I became interested in Gatto's work to actually answer your first question. Um, I, I became intimately interested in Gatto's work uh, when I started doing work in like kind of the higher education and early career space a couple of years ago. And I noticed that a lot of people who were coming out of prestigious universities, many of whom were my peers, you know, I, I attended an Ivy League university and saw this going on while I was there. Uh, people who were coming out of prestigious universities, people who were coming out of prestigious K through 12 programs uh, had a much more difficult time going off the established path than people who were coming from say like homeschooling circles. Um, a lot of the students, a lot of the participants that I was working with who were homeschooled uh, were much more comfortable with being thrown at 18 or 22 years old into a job, especially a particularly unstructured job. Gotcha. Uh, the people who are coming out of really prestigious established education programs had a much harder time with it. And that's the point where I was like, okay, this is weird. And I went back and I revisited some of Gatto's work. Gotcha. And you actually in that forward, you have, I have a quote here of part of what, what your forward was where you said um, at college, I found a continuation of the same push towards standard standardization and measuring human drives, skills, desires, dreams, and futures. I saw high caliber classmates get caught in fierce competition for conventional careers, working at companies for which they cared very little. I think that that sort of comes back to your, you know, to the quote that you carry, right? You have these very capable and smart young individuals and, and they're sort of all fighting for someone else's script. <laughs> that, that's, that's how I sort of view college, right? You're, you're all pushing to get into, you know, now maybe it's the tech companies, but maybe when, when we were younger, it was like, you know, some Wall Street firm. Um, and you're not, it's just more of perpetuating the same system instead of going out and actually writing your, your own script. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'm always careful to say there are people who they really do want to go work at Google. They want to go work at yeah. Apple. Uh, they want to go work at McKinsey, whatever. But that's actually a very small percentage of the people who go and pursue those things because the vast majority of the people who pursue those things, especially these elite institutions where you have this weird medic effect of everyone imitating everybody else, which is something that, you know, Peter Thiel's written about in zero to one that I think is worth looking at if you're interested in this topic, uh, that they end up imitating everybody else and pursuing the same jobs because that's what's expected of them. And that goes back to some of the points that Gatto talks about is that in the, the K-12 compulsory schooling system, you have a system where it's easy to predict the actions of your actors, right? Uh, you have the vast majority of people who just because of uh, nature or nurture, that's a whole nother discussion, are pretty much incapable of joining a managerial class, right? Uh, they're, they're either not conscientious enough or they have uh, their IQs are particularly low or they come from a background that just makes it impo nearly impossible for them to penetrate that, that managerial class. You want them to be predictable. You want them to go into jobs and jobs and roles that 
uh, you can manage them, right, as a manager. And then you get another class of people who they make great managers. They're particularly intelligent, uh, they're particularly conscientious, and they're particularly conformist, right? Uh, again, if you are somebody who's trying to make a very rational form of schooling, if you are the, the man behind the curtain, right? And like I said, there isn't one man behind the curtain historically with this. There are many, many men behind the curtain. Um, but if you are the man behind the curtain, right? And you're deciding, I want to design a schooling regimen in a way that creates a rational society, a rational civilization that will work for maximum economic output, you would absolutely design one that formally uh, conform, makes people conform, right? Like that they literally cannot not join. Um, and then you would also design a cultural component that makes it very, very difficult for people not to follow a certain set of scripts. Uh, and I think the thing that we've seen in the United States in the last couple of decades, really since the 80s, is the extension of this cultural component. It's really, really hard for people, especially if you are somebody who is uh, particularly conscientious, particularly high grades and ambitious, to not follow that script that's expected of you. Gatto has in one of his essays, you know, that... It's people who are from upper middle class, established, reputable backgrounds who have the hardest time making their own way in the world because they have all these certificates and credentials and all these things telling them that they know something and that they should be able to navigate careers or uh, their lives in a certain way. But then a particularly nasty economic downturn or a divorce or a death in the family pulls that rug out from under them, right? And mm -hmm. they realize that those credentials are really just credentials for very specific roles. And they don't have domain expertise throughout life, generally speaking. Um, that's, that's real. I, I, I've seen this, I've seen this firsthand. Um, I've particularly seen it in the elite echelons of higher education. I have a friend from college, for example, I've been talking to uh, recently, who is a consultant at McKinsey, uh, you know, really top tier job, right? This is, this is a job that at the Ivies and at the public Ivies, people fight for to become a management consultant yeah. at McKinsey. And he has, he hates it. And he has no idea how to navigate leaving it because that's just what he's kind of been conditioned for from middle school. And that's hard for people to learn. It's not impossible, but it's hard. And I think Gatto's work is really important because it reminds people, these are skills you actually have to learn and you're not, you can't rely on the education system to teach them to you. Well, I think too, the, you know, the, 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 the whole, I guess, education ladder or, or even life ladder that was set up, it, it sort of worked, right, until like the 1980s, right? You could actually pay for, like you, you didn't really get that screwed if you followed the, the conformist path, you could say, right? If you went to school and you got a good job and you bought a house, all those things were relatively affordable. And I think what's changed in the last 30 years is all, and you could say whether it's through inflation or 
or yeah, whatever the causes you believe they are, the price of education has gone through the roof. The price of owning a home has gotten more expensive. So it's like that path now leaves you with the enormous burden of, of debt. Besides the fact that you might be, you know, like you say, your, your, your acquaintance who, who's not happy in the job, you're actually, you, you just realize that financially you've been sold a, a bag of goods that maybe didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that what you ended up having, if we're, if we're viewing it through like Gatto's lens, well, you had up until the 70s, probably, and then probably changed during the recession at the end of the 70s and drastically changed uh, with the shift from manufacturing to finance in the United States in the 80s, is education served industry as it was designed to do. It was a fantastic tool for the vast majority of people, the vast, vast majority of people to be placed into managerial white collar jobs that would allow them to enter the middle class, right? You, you can see this happen with the influx of people into higher education in particular after the GI Bill. But then what you ended up getting was that education became its own industry, right? So while higher education and K-12 education are you could say in bed with, you know, these big corporations as recruiting tools for them. They also have their own incentive structure, which is just to maximize the number of butts that they can get in seats, especially at the higher education level, right? Uh, one thing that an economist friend of mine pointed out to me some years ago is that for universities in particular, the student is not the customer. The student is input. So if you understand econ, it means like the student is raw material, right? Yep. Like if, we're, if we go back to the Econ 101 examples, for whatever reasons, professors love giving the example of a widget factory. If a university is a widget factory, the students are the raw materials that become the widgets on the other side. The customers are the parents and the loan companies. You need students to be in, you need butts in seats in order to get the loans. That's all the universities care about. And I think you see a similar thing at the K-12 level. Uh, it, it's, it's a bit more obfuscated, uh, a bit more opaque because it's a bit more of just a government monopoly, but it's a similar kind of thing. You need students in schools because then what you can do is you can turn around and say like, we've got so many students in our classrooms, we need more funding. Yeah. And then you get your own industrial complex there. Whereas like, if you actually look at the economics data on it, the actual, and this is something Gatto pointed out in the 90s, is that something like 60 or $70,000 per student being poured into, uh, you know, the public school system per year in New York State, right? And that number has drastically ballooned since the 90s. What if you actually just took that money and you gave it to families, right? Like, yeah, a lot of them would make bad decisions, but a lot of schools make bad decisions about students too, and that's another one of these things that I think is lost in these discussions that I think Gatto's work and others is helpful for reminding us. The choice is not between like a perfect schooling reg regime that educates everybody perfectly or letting parents choose. The choice is between the, re the very real public school system and compulsory school system a lot of people have to put up with, which is far from ideal, or letting parents choose. 
So one of the trends that I think is particularly interesting in this space is homeschooling among African-Americans. It's ballooned in really since like 2008. And you can point to a lot of conjectures for why that is. I think it's simply because the cost of homeschooling has come drastically down with yep. the access to resources on the internet. But African-American families are historically those who are treated least well by the compulsory state school system. Sure. So if you're someone who cares about the quality of education that people should be able to have access to, especially if you care about it through any kind of social justice lens, you should absolutely be in favor of something like what Gatto's arguing for. Because the reality is a lot of people are stuck in schools that are not treating them well. Yeah. That didn't, I didn't know that statistic that it was African-American families. So, so is that just recently, the last 10 years, like you said? Yeah, it, it, there's a, an article on the Foundation for Economic Education website on this, on homeschooling among uh, African-Americans. I think I may have actually cited this statistic as well in one of my articles. I, I've got a series of articles on the FEE website, fee.org, uh, about social change yeah. uh, and how social change happens. And I think homeschooling is a fantastic example of how social change happens. There, there were no marches in the streets. There were no massive political campaigns. Uh, you know, there, there, nobody was changing their, their Facebook profile photo with a filter, you know, like legalized homeschooling. It just happened over years as the costs came down. Technology drove the costs down. And early adopters drove the social costs down, right? 10 years ago, 20 years ago, especially, if you were to say, I homeschool, you'd be treated kind of as a social outcast. Uh, this is yep. increasingly, this is increasingly not the case, or this is decreasingly the case. Well, I think the, like, like you mentioned, the, the cost is down, right? And, and I think you could act in many ways with, the, with the with the internet right as a tool you can actually give uh, if done right like a much richer education right you have access to any type of expert in the world through uh, a conversation like we're having right now or through a video chat or um, and I think I think I feel like we're gonna see a lot of creative ways um, that people are raising their kids on their own whether through groups or, or, or you know parent to, to child or to, to, to multiple children. But um, I don't know if you've come across, I just wanted to mention a couple resources that you've come across because we talked about them before we started recording. But um, Connor Boyick, who's written some children's books, I think is a great resource. So if you go to Libertas United, he's got some uh, children's books that he's written. He's also written uh, Passion Driven Education, which is a book around this topic as well. And then Dan Lazonis, who wrote, who sells a program called the Einstein Blueprint. And I think he has another one that's like 10x your kids. So he's raised two children of his own and, and homeschooled them and, and had some, yeah, they're just very, you know, from the videos, at least I haven't met them in person, but um, just very talented. It seemed like uh, they got their head on their shoulders and I think his kid is doing like, speaking he's written his own book and he's only like 12 years old 
Um, so it's pretty fascinating. I think we're going to see a lot of different examples like that over the next uh, 10 to 15 years of, of people that just took, you know, took their children's education under their own responsibility. And then um, I think the results are going to be pretty, pretty fascinating. Like you said, that, that whole period of adolescence, if you, if you just empower the children to actually just go and explore the world a bit and, and, and try things, seems a lot more engaging to some degree than, than just the high school drama and gossip that most kids uh, have to deal with. Well, this is a point that Gatto makes, right? That everybody actually has the capability for genius, right? But you, you get a couple of years where you can either embrace that genius or you can beat it down, right? And for the vast majority of people, I think, that gets beaten down through school. I think just from a conditioning perspective, if we're just taking this from, you know, like a behavioralism kind of perspective, what compulsory schooling does is it conditions people to associate learning with work. And work generally is thought of as pain, right? That in itself, I think, is, is ridiculously dangerous for people, especially as the pace of information creation increases. Uh, so there's more and more information being created every year as the pace of uh, new skills, the pace at which they need to be learned increases. You can't have a generation of people who they resent learning because they view learning as drudgery. And in the vein of people who I think are worth looking at as far as research goes, Gatto is great if you really want to like make your blood boil. <laughs> um, and he's really, he, he's pretty good from a, from a historical perspective. A lot of this stuff is pretty shady um, or, or murky. So it's, it's really difficult to find like really good historical research here. Gatto is a great place to start and then follow his footnotes. But if you really want somebody from a sociological and anthropological perspective, a book that I would strongly recommend is Peter Gray, G-R-A-Y, uh, free to learn, where the story he tells is, you know, he had a young young child who uh, kept getting in trouble at school, and then uh, he gets called into the principal's office one day to talk to his son, and his son tells him to go to hell. He's like, a nine-year-old should not be telling his father to go to hell. There's something wrong here. He says, rather than like hitting my kid and just telling him, you know, get in line, as I think a lot of parents would do, I thought maybe I'll give my child the benefit of the doubt and see if maybe it's not him, it's actually the education system that he's in. And Gray dug into the anthropology, the evolutionary anthropology of learning and how people learn well and how they've, they've evolved to learn, right? And one of the things he finds is that the play system that young children use and young adults use, and I think a lot of young adults use through things like video games. So this is an area where I think Gray and Gatto would kind of diverge, uh, is how a lot of people learn, right? They learn through a system of play. Because what is play, right? Play is a system of informal and formal rules with incentive structures. And that's pretty much what life is. <laughs> it's yeah. a system of formal and informal rules with incentive structures. And you either learn the rules and you play by the rules and you invent 
new ways to help you achieve the outcomes you want to achieve within the rules that should be followed and outside of the rules that shouldn't be followed or you don't get ahead, right? So I think gray is fantastic. Uh, I did a podcast series with a friend of mine, Jeff Till, a couple of years ago uh, called D-School Yourself, where, where we interviewed Peter Gray. Uh, we interviewed Thaddeus Russell. He's a, an academic out on the West Coast who's doing some stuff outside yeah. the traditional system. Uh, we interviewed one of my former colleagues, TK Coleman, uh, a couple other people. But the D-School Yourself podcast series is enjoyable. And to a broader point that you made, I think that if you're in the position where you're thinking, maybe this is a, a path I would like to follow with my children, the thing I always encourage people, I was not homeschooled. I think that's an important caveat for me to throw out there. I went through a traditional public school. Uh, but a, a, a good approach to, think to, the, to take to this is, why not try it, right? The worst that you could happen is that could happen is you waste a little bit of time and you send your kids back to whatever traditional school you pulled them out of. A lot of people don't try it because they think it is really hard or they think that their children won't be socialized. But the reality is it's considerably less difficult than people think. And the socialization point I think is, is an excuse most people make for themselves. It, yeah. Most, most of the young adults I've interacted with who are homeschooled uh, are actually better socialized than a lot of the kids I, I interact with coming out of traditional schools. And I think that's because if you actually expose your young adults, if you actually expose, expose your children to people who are more than plus or minus one year different than them, you'll find that they actually can talk to adults. Uh, if you just lock them in their room all day, yeah, of course they're going to have a hard time interacting with other people. But if you also lock them in a room with people who are just their same age all the time, they're also going to have a hard time interacting with people. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right about that. That's been my experience as well. I, w I went to public school and I feel like I've had this thing about like the, the older person, like the, this sort of need to listen to authority and, 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 you know, maybe that's part of me, um, part of my personality, but the other part of me always wonders like, was that something that was just conditioned into me through, through schooling? And one of the things that I've done the last couple of years, I've, I've volunteered at uh, junior achievement. You go into like public schools and you talk about entrepreneurship and the economy and how businesses work. So it's, a, it's sort of a topic I like and, and I get to do something, you know, with kids, which I think is also worthwhile. But, but I've noticed that you can do it from anywhere from second graders to, to sixth graders. And I have noticed that the sixth and fifth graders, it's almost like at that time period, they've, they've been conditioned to such an extent that there's like a lack of excitement. And maybe that's just could be antidotal or, you know, could be just the school that was in. Um, but there's, I feel like there's a strong push towards just, like you said, killing that part of curiosity that's naturally in kids. Cause when I go and visit the second graders, the fourth graders, the third graders, they're just super excited. It's like, they're like a celebrities in the classroom and they're excited to learn and they, they're interested in the topic for the most part, you know, some kids are shy or, 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 or less talkative, but at least you have a couple that are really excited. And then when you go into the older grades, 
it's almost like they've, yeah, it, it, just not the, the, the excitement's not there, the curiosity's not there. Um, and it just strikes me that, like you said, if, if, you, if you taught and it sort of encouraged that curiosity and the, the system or whatever they were in continued to do that, that you'd probably have much better results. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that one of the things that you'll see is younger children like interacting with the world around them, right? It's why you see, like, like we threw a party here recently at my house, and uh, some of my friends brought their young children, and they like playing with things, they like throwing things around, they like pushing their boundaries, and that's good, and that's actually good for people to have well into like early adulthood, because even in our social interactions, you probably should play with the, the boundaries that you're interacting with people on, uh, because that's how you find out where those boundaries are. If you just assume where they are, often you don't get the progress in conversations and relationships that people need, right? Yeah. Why you get like the awkward interaction that you have with like a junior high schooler. Uh, you know, one of the more cynical approaches that I've heard to this is uh, somebody who will say, yes, you know, young adults do seem to have uh, their curiosity beaten out of them, but that's kind of what they need because that's how the real world works and they should just accept that. And, and I, I have heard this from, a, from parents and I find that such a depressing <laughs> and uh, yeah. troubling approach. So just because you have a drudgerous view of the world, just because you have a cynical view of learning and education doesn't mean that that's how you should want your child to have a view of the world. And I think that's an important point for a lot of us is when we're viewing education and learning and careers, we're, if we come from a background like you and I do, we're viewing it through a thoroughly schooled lens. So it's hard to like imagine what the education would be like, especially in the, when, you, when you consider everything that's, like I said before, that's available today how that could be different. Um, well, but I agree with your, your When we get on the conversation of education, I remind people constantly, uh, when I used to have debates on this with people, I don't even debate people on this anymore. When I used to have debates with people on this topic, uh, the, the thing that would always come back to is, well, how would you see people being educated? And I tell them, it's like, look, I, it's a much less formal system than people think. Right. I was actually listening to NPR the other day and they were uh, giving a review of, they were doing some sort of investigative journalism on a, on a school that does, you know, learner driven education, one of these alternative schools. And they were interviewing some of the students there and the students were like, I'm learning, but it doesn't feel like learning. Right. Yeah. That's the thing when we're, when we're criticizing education regimens, when we're criticizing approaches to education, we are doing it through a lens where what we believe our model of learning is it needs to be formal and it needs to be in a command control model. And the reality is not all learning. In fact, very little learning needs to look like that. I'm not saying like we shouldn't have lectures. I, some people learn really well in lectures, but what I'm yeah. saying is that there are probably as many ways to learn a topic as there are people trying to learn it. And we just need to take a, bit less of a hands-on approach when it comes to viewing and experimenting with learning. You'd be surprised how quickly young children learn.
Yeah, I think that young kids too also, right, like you said, they're, they're curious about the world. So as you, if you expose them to the world, and I think, and actually I wanted to read one, Gatto, Gatto's approach, which he had in, in, in Dumbing Us Down, which he says, uh, talking about, you know, what should this, this type of education look like, you know, the proper type of education or, or, or a more richer type of education. And he says, independent study, community service, adventures and experience, large doses of privacy and solitude, a thousand different apprenticeships. These are powerful, cheap and effective ways to start a real reform of school. So he viewed it more as, which I think is one of the, Ray, his main criticism of, of, uh, of schooling, which is you don't really get time to think for yourself, right? There's like interruptions constantly of, you know, the next class starts and the bell rings and you're not left to actually explore and to see the connections between different things. You're just sort of brain dumped a bunch of information and you're supposed to memorize it and there's no richness to it. There's no, um, you can't actually explore your own curiosity on, on, on your time while you're at school. Absolutely. I mean, the school system, a traditional school, you're sitting in a classroom for, I remember in my high school, it was 39 minutes, which is now as an adult, I see that as such a ridiculously short period of time. <laughs> That's true. You're going to study math for 39 minutes today. And then you're going to move on. You're going to study English for 39 minutes. And then you're going to study biology for an hour because it's, it's over the lunch period and that's how that was designed. And then you're going to switch over into music for 39 minutes. It takes most people about 20 minutes to really get immersed in a topic they actually want to study. So if you're giving somebody 39, 40, 45 minutes, half of that time is going to be spent on overcoming like task switching, which is this cognitive tax that people experience where you're trying to switch from one thing to another. It's why when you're writing and you get a Slack notification, you go into Slack to answer the notification, then you go back to writing. It actually, that, that on paper should take you probably two minutes. It probably takes you closer to 10, right? So yeah. the way that most traditional schools are set up, and again, this is not a public versus private thing. A lot of private schools are set up this way too, is far from conducive to how people actually learn. And people like Gatto have drawn the connection between a lot of the industrial revolutionists and the public schools or the, the traditional school model. Uh, you'll find that the setup in a lot of highly traditional schools is very similar to the setup in two different institutions around the turn of the 20th century. And those institutions are factories and military schools. So if you really want to dive into like some of the scary stuff behind uh, traditional schooling, I recommend you look up uh, Johann Fichte's Addresses to the German Nation. The Addresses to the German Nation were a series of speeches given by this German philosopher and a Prussian philosopher and nationalist uh, trying to develop this idea of what a German nation, a unified German nation would look like. And I believe he was giving this in the 1700s. It was after uh, Prussia's defeat by Napoleon. And he actually goes in and argues point blank that a good 
schooling regimen crushes any sense of free will. Because if you were designing a schooling regimen for the modern era, for an era of total war and for an era of the industrial revolution, right? Of factories and the traditional industrial model to, to a corporate structure, you would not want the vast majority of people have any sense of free will. And that's a lot of what's behind the model that evolved into what we have in the United States today. Uh, you know, Gatto goes through a lot of this history. He traces it from Fichte, uh, later to Horace Mann, who was a, a yeah. American uh, reformist and policymaker, visited Prussia, visited their school model, which was based largely by on, on Fichte standards, brought that back to the United States, first in Massachusetts, and then it spread throughout the rest of the country, right? And in a lot of parts of the country, it had to be imposed on communities at gunpoint. And I'm not saying that there's like this broad, massive conspiracy in the background trying to force this 18th century Prussian model of crushing yeah. free will on you and your children. So I think we're really just living in the inertia of the system now. Yep. Could there people? Could there be people in the system that still understand this dynamic and still support it? Sure, but but I think for, by the the majority actually believes it because they were raised in it, right? They were like we were. <laughs> so it's like you, the system perpetuates itself, like you said, the incentives and the the growing need to to have more larger budget and and so it's like. I, I think it's not, you know, whether or not in the 1800s or 1700s it was by conspiracy is almost irrelevant. It's like, well, what are we, here's the system that we have. Here, here, here's what it actually does. I think we can see pretty clear, clearly what it does to most children. And then, well, what can we do about it is probably the more useful um, aspect to, to look at it. Try a different approach to education. Uh, worst case scenario, you don't like it. Your family doesn't like it. You send your kids back to a traditional school. Uh, that's fine. But don't, if you're curious about trying something different, don't ignore that curiosity. Don't feel bad about it either. Uh, it's never been easier to try something different when it comes to education. And yeah. that's your purview as a parent. You own that right. It is not anybody else's right. So, yeah, and I think, I think even if, if let's say the parents aren't in the, you know, cause everyone has different situations and you could be a single parent or you could be someone who can't afford it or doesn't have the, the time you think that might be necessary to do that. You still, I feel like the other thing that people can do if you're not going to homeschool is still realize that you are responsible for your children's education in the long run, even if they are going to a school and just try to understand what they're learning, why they're learning it and, and have your influence in there still, because um, yeah, if you don't, then it, someone else is writing that, that script is how, is how I look at it. How Gatto puts it is you wouldn't trust a stranger with your TV or your car. Why would you trust them with your child? That's right. Yeah. It, it is sort of amazing when you take that step back and you think about it and you're like, everyone just sends off their kids to school and you don't know the beliefs of that person that you're sending them off with. You don't know anything virtually <laughs> other than that they're a teacher and they work at the school. 
but we just do it like willingly. Um, I think when you think about what I feel like that's one of the things that, that Gato, you know, just me personally, he, he so clearly articulates the, the, the roots of it and, and the effects of it that it's just very hard to, to unsee or, or, or to unhear what he's, what he's told you about the schooling system and whether or not it worked for the last 150 years, maybe they were, you know, you made me think while you were talking, I'm like, maybe they were right. Cause we have lived in somewhat industrialized. You needed the factory worker type person, but I think we're headed because of the internet into a different age where that type of person will be at a huge disadvantage because their, their jobs will be automated and their, their skill set just won't be needed anymore. We actually need, free thinkers and problem solvers and creative people. And, and I think most people are naturally that way. And I think John Taylor Gatto, one of the things I liked about him as well was he, he sort of viewed um, that creativity. He saw it in any, you know, the public schools that he worked in, in, in New York city. He said that he didn't see a difference between the lower income students versus the higher income. If he, it was, it was his approach actually that changed um, how, you know, their own performance, you know, because how many entrepreneurs have we, have we killed because of public schooling or, uh, or just people in general, because we've beat, beaten the curiosity or the, the, their own belief, right? 10 years of getting D's and C's can make you believe that, that you're not actually capable of, of doing anything in the world when those things are actually pretty irrelevant in, on whether you can actually do anything. 